The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I am Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast, the show for people around the globe who are feeling and thinking deeply about climate change, global warming, and all these aspects of this great situation in our world right now. And um, today we're lucky to have a special guest. Hi, I'm Sarah Jaquette Ray. I'm a professor at Cal Poly Humboldt. And both uh, Panu and I have followed Sarah's work, and Panu has worked with Sarah. And um, this episode is, follows nicely along with um, our conversation recently. Uh, with Isabel Coppola, a young researcher who's been studying climate anxiety. So we're going to talk about a number of things today, uh, both in the university and in our own lives and in the world. Um, Pano, do you want to get us started? Yes, warmly welcome all and a special welcome to you, Sarah. Um, very good to have, have you here. We've been collaborating with the Existential Toolkit for Climate Justice Educators projects. We've already had Ellen Kelsey visiting the podcast pre previously, who is another power figure in that network together with, with Sarah. And of course, in my studies of climate emotions and anxiety, I've often come across, across Sarah, Sarah's work. And, but to get us, get us running, how, how does it feel right now, Sarah? How, what's, what's the situation around life and climate change where, where you are now? Thanks for asking and thanks for having me on this podcast. I'm so excited to meet you, Thomas, and to see you again, Panu, in this way. And how does it feel right now is that um, there's a, a lot of intensity. I feel the intensity. I feel the intensity from the people who are reaching out about this. I feel the intensity from the people who are working on it, like you both. And uh, certainly the intensity around climate, evidence of climate disruption and distress all around the world. So I'm thinking about, you know, Mississippi, Pakistan, um, thinking about the heat waves even right closer to home here and the smoke and the fires in the Northwest. I am personally in a quite a refuge from all of that here behind the Redwood Curtain in McKinleyville, California, where it's foggy and chilly and and no, and the air is very clear so i feel very lucky um for the moment anyway um but yes feeling it in all my networks and feeling it among students and and people who are who are um the news i'm paying attention to as well as i follow these other stories thank you Sarah, for for sharing all all that really really appreciate it and for the listeners who haven't followed yet Sarah's work, she's been one who advocates for different constructive methods for people to be able to stay with these various feelings and often the contradictions, for example, finding oneself in relatively safe space and being able to experience also, also joy and happiness, for example, and at the same 
time knowing what's happening around the corner and, and so on. So I know, know Sarah, that you've been a long time engaged with this, but what I don't know exactly myself either is that uh, how did you get started with your sort of climate emotions journey? Would you like to share something about that? Yeah, this is a good question because it's interestingly enough, I have a background, my bachelor's degree is in religious studies, and I studied a lot of Eastern philosophy, and I was super into Zen Buddhism and Taoism and stuff, and uh, something happened in me at the end of college where I somehow thought that if I really wanted to make a difference in the world and be of service to matters of social justice, I was also very involved in reproductive justice issues during college and even in high school. And I just thought if I wanted to do that work, it wasn't going to be through religion and spirituality. And so I I kind of gave that up and went down this path and ended up in environmental studies as my lens through which to work on these matters in the world. And I, I, I had sort of given up my spiritual interests entirely. And um, I always felt like what I loved about teaching in the college level was the almost bordering on therapeutic relationship with students and sort of being the midwife of this transition moment that in most Western culture, we don't have big rituals and ceremonies to mark for young people. And it felt really bordering on sacred for me to be in a college mm-hmm. professor for you know, watching students undergo this massive transition. And it was, it's always been a big existential moment, <laughs> but something happened and, you know, about seven or eight years ago where the existential moment seemed worse than before, you know, it was sort of a, you know, you, when you, when you challenge your cherished beliefs and you become enlightened about your complicity in various forms of injustice or your ideas about what nature is become unraveled. Um, these things are sort of, exciting for students, even as they're challenging. But the despair aspect of realizing that they're living in a world that that is uninhabitable for many, many people and will become uninhabitable for them and is likely to be uninhabitable for any of their children or ancestors, you know, future ancestors, that this existential reality of the scale and and immediacy of this happening was becoming part of our classroom lives. And I realized that in order for this generation to be as empowered and motivated, engaged to take on these challenges of the world, that they were going to need something other than what I had been trained to give them. And it was more like what I was learning in college for my BA in religious studies than what I had learned in my PhD and my master's for environment. So I, I sort of had to kind of go back to the drawing board and reinvent myself as a as a professor um, to to meet the moment that students were asking for. And this is where I at the time I wouldn't have said climate was my frame, but I knew there was something existential that I needed to learn all the skills. I had to study all the psychologists, I had to study all the social movement leaders of all the movements. And I had to um, maybe also learn something about, go back to my thinking about spirituality and and thinking about uh, other sources of energy for, for this generation. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks for share, sharing all that. And this brings a, a 
interesting similarity between our parts also because I also for a long time worked with religion and spirituality and then also moved towards interdisciplinary environmental stuff much more the, for the very same reasons that you mentioned and this also touches on our discussions with Thomas a couple of episodes back, back about Bill Plotkin's work mm-hmm. and the transitions and, and rituals mm-hmm. but before I go further on to that so uh, how about you Thomas what does this bring into your mind? Yeah, no, this is a great dialogue, and it, I'm 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 thinking of my own teaching experiences and teaching graduate school and an undergrad. Again, when I was coming out as uh, someone who had studied, who had worked in wilderness therapy and wanted to work, learned how to do ecotherapy or wilderness or outdoor counseling. There were no programs at the time in the in the '90s uh, official programs, so I ended up creating creating some of those programs. So. I mean, I, I I found Sarah. I found your field guide book very validating because it it really reminded me of a lot of things that I had invented on my own as well, um, with teaching. Um, you know, kind of just even with undergrad, simple rules like for every hour you spend dealing with all this heavy existential stuff, you need to spend an hour outside doing something healthy for yourself. You know, these kind of basic things, and of course, coming teaching mostly therapists in my in the clinic in the eco psychology program that I founded. It, that we were we were automatically doing all the therapy stuff from the very get-go but very different than some I'd, i've met over the years professors you know pro, you know especially 10 20 years ago they were trying to teach students about climate change and then they'd get a nickname like dr doom you know by their students or something like that because they would just totally and meeting people that tried to study ecotopics and got so turned off they just left that major mm-hmm. and so i really appreciate i think we've come a long way and, and I think just generally, we've come a long way in how to teach young people how to do these, how to work in these areas. So it's, and we have to relearn it every day <laughs> because it's so hard still. Yeah, I think we're at a real inflection point with young people. I think when I first started noticing this in young people, they really would have thought self-care and that hour in nature you just mentioned and the taking the time to rest that would have all been just a privilege that we don't have time for. And that the urgency and the... Um, the urgency of the problems and com- combined with the kind of guilt around their privilege. And I'm talking about diversity of students here, not just white privileged students. And, you know, I'm at a Cal State. So relatively speaking, you know, compared to college students, this is not a privileged group. But in an American, as an Americans, period, they are privileged, right? They're American college students. So recognizing their global position you know, this notion of I should burn out, the burnout is actually the badge of how much I care. Hmm. The burnout is actually the sign I'm doing enough work. If I'm not burned out, then I'm not working hard enough to solve these problems. And so there's a there was a sense at the time that we, I had a real uphill battle to climb to get them to come around to realizing that the burnout was not going to save the planet. And now young people are complete. I, I feel I just heard young people, the majority of the climate movement is completely aware of the need for them to the last this out. This that this is a marathon, not a sprint, and that they're going to have to take care of themselves to to keep engaged for their lives. So I think there's a there's a real shift happening. Mm-hmm. That's very promising to hear, and I've been noticing similar things, especially with the new climate movements. 
uh, in integrating this thing. And it's been a bit more tricky for traditional environmental organizations where the working culture very often has been such that you sort of keep your sadness hidden and try to keep a positive and optimistic outlook. And well, I know, Sarah, that you've been doing critical research on the history of American environmentalism also. That's one one, one, one direction we could we could go here, but I'd uh, still li like us to keep for a moment uh, with the stu students. So what kind of things have you seen recently um, among students uh, other than this increasing awareness of the need also for se self-care and uh, taking breaks so what, what's your observations about what's happening yeah i think one a lot of things but the one i'd like to pull on the thread of right now is that something i've been chewing on for some time which is whether or not you know what they can they have incredible impatience to be in the college classroom and you, we saw this with greta thunberg and the climate strikes that there was a sense of why should i sit in this classroom to learn something for a future that is not even guaranteed and they were told, go back, you know, instead of protesting, go back to school, get the degree so you have some power so you can do something. And the youth response to that was, there is not going to be, you know, the systems you think I'm going to get a job in are not going to exist anymore. We're inventing, we have to reinvent those systems now. And I think that that suspicion of existing institutions that was really amplified in COVID as well, the sort of crumbling apart and the instability of structures that we took for granted in my generation is a real opportunity for young people. And I think that there's an enthusiasm and excitement and trepidation around what's possible. Are we midwiving a new future? Are we living at the precipice of the great turning? You know, I have students who are really involved in abolition or other forms of social justice, you know, future visioning, you know, and they want they want something new and different. They they love the thought that we're living in a womb and not a tomb. Mm. And so the doom narrative of or the doom moment of uh, environmental studies seems to be on its way out. I'd like to think it is. Um, and we're having this kind of uh, radical imagination. Let's build the world we want um, kind of a moment with young people. However, they're also therefore completely suspicious when you do things like career counseling. <laughs> so there's so much pressure because institutions of higher education are neoliberalized. We're part of capitalism. There's so much pressure to get jobs after college, right? And of course, our students, many of them are first generation, uh, you know, college students. They feel a lot of pressure from their families that if they're going to take the sacrifice to go to college, they darn well better get jobs afterwards. So the pressure is coming from all directions to channel the knowledge into marketable skill sets, the neoliberal imperative to vocationalize these critiques is there's an internal paradox there. There's a tension there. We're about we're critiquing the systems that are all falling apart and we're celebrating what we're going to build next. But then you're also telling me I have to build a resume for the old structure, right? And I have to market myself for this capitalist system that's failing everybody. Um, so there's this, I think that's a very interesting debate that higher institutions of higher education are very slow to be thinking about. And I, I really wish they would be thinking about it <laughs> more, much yeah. more richly. I wonder what happens in these career planning you know, conferences where people are going to them, career planning for what? <laughs> so, young people know, they're, they're already on this, you know, they're like, for, build a resume for, for what kind of economy, you know, mm. for the great transition, you know? Yeah. So. 
No, this is great. Just uh, we were talking earlier, just j even just this morning, we're, we're involved in different networks and the Climate Psychology Alliance has various listservs and uh, conversation forums here in the U.S. And there was a there was a very spirited and passionate, you know, exchange about the role of the university. Uh, we have links in our in our show and you know there was a nice article that came out in the washington post the other day about university counseling centers getting involved in and in helping support students with anxiety about climate and other issues similar to the work sarah's been doing in her class but you know it's not surprising of course that that's going to show up in the in the in the counseling center but then people are also critiquing the whole idea of a university and maybe we should just have students learn regenerative techniques for for living in a new world versus you know essentially scrap the university as a, as a vestige of modernity but of course it's not that simple and so again we're we're that's i think with, with this work for me it's always you always have to keep stepping back another step and looking at the looking at the bigger picture and the bigger picture and realizing it's not that simple and it's not that simple i think that's one of the hardest things for young people to 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 grok is that it just is not that simple part of that whole neoliberal system is offering consumers simple solutions to their life problems right and so we do get indoctrinated into the simplicity i think bill mckibben talks about that and other people talk about that it's just not that simple you know these are complicated things that take time so i don't have anything specific to go with go from there but just to, just to name that kind of that kind of thing well and I, just to, to pull that thread a little bit too because I sometimes think that um, that young people feel like older generations are telling them you can't have what you want, you know. Um, and I think that part of that is about the kind of developmental stage of where you know, sort of these five stages of development, or whatever you both of you are experts on this more than I am. But this notion that only at a certain point do you start to really grasp nuance and paradox and gray areas. Mm -hmm. And I think the it's not that simple speaks to this sort of deeper climate wisdom that, you know, we're going to have a lot of both and here. We're going to have to participate in the current economy as we work to dismantle it. Right. So there's a there's a lot of both and that I think young people, it's not about their naivety so much as it is about their, um, you know, desire for what Alexis Shotwell calls purity politics, you know, the, the sort of ideological purity of just signing up for one thing and having everything be clearly in line with that mission. Whereas they're going to have a lot of hypocrisy and inconsistency in their lives. And that's just the messiness of, of climate work, all these work, all this work. So I think it's hard for them to accept that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very well, very well said, both of you and recently came across this concept called messy hope <laughs> and having done lots of analysis on different conceptualizations of hope that was that was new and, and fascinating and totally agree with the messiness and the need for embracing ambivalence and uncertainty and of course these are very very difficult things and then we see the counter movement like you Sarah hinted at people wanting more binary thinking uh, and movements which could support that also so that's something that, that I'm actually worried about uh, for, for the year, years to come that how, how are we going to deal with, with, with the ri rise of authoritarian 
authoritarianism and the appeal of just going with, with the group. I'm often thinking of Erich Fromm, the old 20th century scholar, and his work on escape from freedom, for for example. But yeah. Uh, and, any thoughts on that, sir? I know that you've been de- discussing relevant topics. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the things when I, in my first book, The Ecological Other, I talked about the emotion of disgust in the environmental movement and how disgust activated by people who already have inclinations that are xenophobic or nativists can really leverage environmental reasons to just reinforce white supremacy. And Betsy Hartman calls that a kind of green hate. Um, This is something that I've, I spent the first chunk of my career thinking about the ways that the environmental movement or environmental ideas and emotions can actually cause greater social injustice. Um, Trying to to tease those things apart. And when I moved to thinking about climate anxiety, I thought I was kind of jumping track entirely and not, and not, and doing something totally different. But I've, I've seen over the few years that I've been researching it, all of the ways that there's some parallels there and the ways that emotion, environmental emotion in particular, but big emotions leverage these kind of fascist tendencies and can, and we see it in lots of places, can underwrite um, some some serious violence, right? So we see this in the El Paso shootings. We saw this in Buffalo and with the Great Replacement Theory. And we see this in Christchurch, of course, this notion of the inconvenient truth being that all these immigrants are the are are going to be um, are somehow a problem in the in the larger climate story. And so the climate anxiety being, you know, leveraged for uh, social injustice for mass violence is something I have great concern about. And so, you know, while we're thinking about coping strategies or how to transform it into climate action and all these other wonderful things or how to live a good life despite any of it, um, I also want us to just make sure we're always paying attention to how it's underwriting some of this more nefarious stuff, including ecofascism, this desire for purity, this desire for binary thinking, for ideological clarity that comes with just saying, you know, wipe all the people off the planet who are causing these problems in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that, you know, I just want to give a shout out to the whole concept of environmental studies as a discipline. And then just listeners, I mean, some of the listeners, you know, will know about this because they've studied this or they've had an environmental studies course, but a lot of people aren't aware of this is, this is what one of the benefits of the university is these, these kind of dialogues you know environmental studies is this great very diverse area um even different kinds of environmental studies programs as you know sarah are quite different in their focus and things like that but it it allows us to talk about these really deep much more much more nuanced discussions than you get in the media and things like that um i'm i'm really um when i was in graduate school in at antioch in new england i i in my clinical psychology doctorate i moonlighted in the in the environmental studies program for a while that's because where all my tribe was and uh you know with mitch mitch tomasho cindy tomasho a lot of these these interesting folks and, uh, and it's funny when i train therapists they ask me how did you get to do all this kind of stuff and i and i often have to tell them well, it didn't come out of psychology you know the stuff i do didn't come out of clinical psychology i had to go find it in other areas like in environmental studies you know where people were talking about their environmental identity and ecological identity and all this sort of stuff so 
I just want to give a shout out to environmental studies folks. And I want to give a shout out to the therapists and the clinical psychologists too, because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there's a real, there's a potential real tension between these worlds as you sort of hinting out Thomas. And, uh, and yet there's so much rich stuff happening at the ecotone between them. That is really exciting. The conversations I'm having with CPA conversations I get to have with people like Renee Lertzman and other folks who are Mm -hmm. trying to be in this space in between Mm -hmm. is fantastic. And I, I want to I want to put a plug in if that's okay for a conference that Blanche Verley out of um, Australia who's written Learning to Live Through the Anthropocene recently a book she's just published and Jade Sasser who's at UC Riverside uh, are putting together a conference that's exactly trying to build out that connection on climate justice and the politics of emotion in April in at UC Riverside. And so if there's any interest in people wanting to come and participate or, you know, visit, well, it'll be in person, which I know makes it a challenge, but um, the conversation that's happening around climate and emotions in the world of psychology is really rich and exciting. But Jade and Blanche and I really want to make sure also that there's a scholarly intervention around the politics of emotion, which is sort of what you're hinting at there, Thomas, about how environmental studies kind of gave you that lens to think about. These are political artifacts, emotions, you know, and they're and they're actually driving, they're creating politics too. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely put a link in, uh, in our show notes to that conference, and it is right up our alley in the climate change and happiness area. We've got a little more time. Uh, I know we want to cycle back to what it means to be happy, because uh, that's a, that's a, that's another thing to interrogate as you as you talk about Sarah in your book, interrogating happiness. Which simply, of course, listeners, that it doesn't mean putting happiness in a chair and shining a bright light on it and slapping it around to interrogate. It means it means uh, let's look deeply at different sides of this and let's. Sp- Let's look from one side and let's look from the other and let's really like go outside of our existing, you know, mental models, right? That's what it means to interrogate something. So, uh, but, you know, what do you think, Panu, as we're interrogating? I know you spend a lot of your time interrogating happiness, Panu. So what are you thinking here? Yeah, and you know, happiness is a very strong, strong figure. It can take take quite a lot of interrogation, and it may see, seem that it's it's breaking breaking up, but still, mm-hmm. still it perse- perseveres. If especially if we are talking about happiness in the deeper sense, as we are trying to do in this in this podcast, not exactly just like the old philosopher Aristotle de- did, but of course linked with that, you know, deeper values. And and the meaningful life, life and uh, Sarah, we haven't actually, I think, ever spoken directly about happiness. How do you see that concept and what's your thoughts on that? Yes, thank you. I love this topic and I'm so delighted to be on this podcast because it has that word in it. Um, So I'm really glad we're going to talk about it. Uh, Yeah, well, there's there's, um, the, the sort of usual critique of it that you can imagine and i put in the book too which is that this the myth of happiness is actually the root of a lot of unhappiness um that we seek happiness in these sort of immediate gratification ways because capitalism defines it that way for us and so we actually find that those things are not making us happy they're making us quite unhappy and that toxic positivity means that we put all people's you know so-called negative or uncomfortable emotions like despair anxiety depression anger 
into the privacy of the therapy room. You know, you cope with that yourself. And I was told by my dean when I first started telling him about all of my students' emotional responses to this stuff, you know, I thought to myself, we need to really reinvent the institution here. And he said, send them to CAPS. You have 15 minutes to spend with them. They should go for anything else besides academics. They need to go to counseling and psychology services. And this really clear divide between what happens in the classroom, what happens in, in the therapy room, these things in the classroom are content, they're political, they're public, and whether they need mental help, mental health help is something that they can call their mom about or go to therapy about or whatever. And that division, I think, is really part of um, what does us a disservice, that sort of toxic positivity culture. And then there's the the uh, other side of the coin, or and also, or the both and about, about all of this, is that, um, you know, despair, anger, uh, anxiety, fear, while they are very motivating and they can actually push people into new transformative places of action, they, for the long term, do not actually generate the kind of energy and resilience that we're all going to need to engage in this work. And so the, a, a real sense of what I what might be called emotional intelligence or, or climate wisdom, I prefer to think of it as, around the utility of long term spending time with those cortisol and emotions and hormones flushing through our bodies and in an amygdala hijack situation outside of our window of tolerance. I'm using all of your psychology ideas now, right? This, it doesn't actually serve the climate, right? It doesn't serve us and it doesn't serve the climate. So um, I, I do actually like thinking about the role of other things, right? That the negativity bias in our brains and in culture um, is not actually the reality we live in, right? That's, that's not actually reality. That is you know, a negative frame on reality. And so I'm always asking, what else is true? What is it that we love that we have fear about getting lost? What is it that we love that we have anxiety that's threatened? Let's focus on feeding what we want to grow. And those positive dopamine hits and emotions and, you know, those seeds at those plants create a feedback loop that keeps us coming back for more. And so there is a real role for happiness and for pleasure and desire. Uh, and and many people will say the climate problem has generated some of the happiness happiest times of their lives because they plugged into community because they found a sense of purpose. So you know we think about um, the real role that these um, positive or or uh, more pleasant emotions really necessarily have in the movement uh, are there to be cultivated for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah. That connects with a lot of topics with touched upon with various guests al- al- along the way and I couldn't agree more 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 personally and the, all this sense of meaningfulness and connection that people have been finding and but also something that I've actually never put into English I've been using it in Finnish called arkipäivän tilastoimaton hyvyys which means unaccounted everyday goodness now this uh, sort I love of that. In, in the flight translation, but, but there, there's so much of that happening in the world, which never never gets uh, charted in any 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 ex- excels of the more capitalist mm-hmm. frame. Yes, mm-hmm. I was just reading a, a bio, an interview with Mike Davis, who's of course the famous Los Angeles and California critic who I love too and he says there's so much unmobilized love out there and it's similar mm. to unaccounted for goodness you know what That's happens beautiful. if we mobilize all this love that we feel instead of thinking about all the things that we fear you know I mean those are all legitimate we all have to have all those emotions but um, they do uh, stymie some of our, our best potential so yeah I'm taking some notes and I was going to write unmobilized love in my 
Spellcheck said, did you mean immobilized? So we have immobilized love <laughs> and mobilized love. Uh, so that's that's a great, that's what's nice about these dialogues. It's, and feelings are wild. That's part of environmental, uh, emotional intelligence. Feelings just come up as we're doing things. So happiness is wild too. It will it will pop up like a weed um, some, sometimes unaccounted for. Um, I love that too. <laughs> uh, I want to, we're going to wrap up here. Um, I, as we're talking, I just want to add another note for our links. Philip Cushman, uh, we uh, died recently, a scholar Philip Cushman, and people might know about him. He had a book about constructing the self, constructing America, constructing the self, which is about this myth of happiness. So it's a he he's one of these thinkers that has been also talked about recently in my circles um, that helped people to understand this this whole idea of the empty self and this kind of this kind of you know corporate capitalist kind of self that sense of emptiness and things like that coming out of more critical critical psychology so just want to put a note about that another thing for people to be thinking about um well where where are you all going here for the rest of your days or evenings as we wrap up sarah what's your rest of your day look like you're just starting over there yeah i'm gonna i have a two book talks to give oh, wow. <laughs> back to back, <laughs> which I'm really excited about is, is there's been a, about a couple weeks there of nothing. So I'm kind of ready to go and do that. And I have a discussion. I'm really excited with the founder of One Earth Sangha, Kristen Barker. She and I have a chat later today. Um, and this means that I can't uh, coach my kids' soccer practice this evening. Mm. I have to have an assistant cover me, so I'm a little boned about that. But um, yeah, I'm just I have a, a mostly a day full of of climate emotion work, which is what I wanted to have my life look like when I took a leave of absence from my job at Cal Poly. So it's delightful, even though I know it's the topic money people think of as grim. <laughs> but it gives me great to, to go to that point. It gives me a great sense of satisfaction to be able to spend so much of my energy thinking about it today. We're very glad to hear here, Sarah. And it's evening in Helsinki and autumn is coming. So it's actually getting getting dark now. Also, I just heard the door, which means that our older son came back home from choir, choir pra practice. And the young one, younger one has been home because he has had a slight coke. And according to the rules, so now even if you have some slight flu, you have to stay home. So he's been with me. I've been doing research on grief theory and, and ecological issues and then sometimes throwing Finnish baseball with him. So that's been my, 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 my day. But I've been very glad about this conversation, Sarah and Thomas. And we'll be posting links also to the existential toolkit stuff that, that you can access, dear listeners, online. And there's a book coming out of that co-edited by, by Sarah. And we'll put a link to Sarah's websites also. So there's different, different thing, things there. But um, th thanks a lot for coming from my part. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks again, Sarah. It was so nice to meet you in, in, in mostly in person here uh, and make a connection with you. I look forward to more and maybe trying to find my way down to Riverside in the spring because I'm sort of nearby there uh, for that for that meeting. Um, and I got my daughter off to school and I'm going to be doing climate psychology things today too so that's that's what we're there are some of us out there that's what we do and there's a lot of people in the world listeners i know a lot of the listeners do good work all day and all different ways in life so i want to honor all that and you all take care of yourselves and i look forward to seeing you further down the path take care take care